Today we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Just take a deep breath, everyone, and just become present to the church around you, to the God who is present to you. And God, we speak to you now. Holy Spirit, would you come? Reveal the love of the Father toward us. Ultimately, reveal Jesus to us. God, you demonstrated your love to us by sending your son to die while we were set against you. Thank you for that love. Now have your way in your church, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Uh, if you're new or visiting, welcome to Park Hill. My name is Evan. My wife, Sandy, and I have the joy and honor of leading this church. Today is Palm Sunday, as Drew said. Palm Sunday, yeah. Someone's clapping. It's great. Um, <laughs> to, Palm Sunday is the last Sunday in Lent which is the season we're about to finish up. And this is the first, uh, the Sunday before Easter. It's Palm Sunday. The date of Palm Sunday changes every year because Easter changes in relation to the Jewish feast of Passover. I don't know if you knew why it shifts around. It's because of Passover. On Palm Sunday, the worldwide church remembers Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem for the Jewish holiday of Passover. And when Jesus rode in on a donkey on that Palm Sunday, it would be his last Passover meal before he's crucified. So we're normally in the book of Colossians, as those of you who go to Park Hill, you know. Uh, but So we have one final teaching in Colossians. One more is left. But we're going to hold off on that teaching until the Sunday after Easter. And our goal this week is to soak ourselves in the story of Christ's passion. 
beginning today with Palm Sunday, and then leading up to Good Friday, this Friday, it's Good Friday. We have our Good Friday service. It's a special time for our church. We uh, are meeting on the south lawn on the promenade here. Uh, we, sometimes we're in here. Sometimes we're on the north. We're actually on that grassy area to the south, um, and it's BYO chairs. So, uh, and it, it can be a little muddy, so bring a good chair with some long legs that can handle a little sinkage. And then... And, and we're going to have seven people, uh, mostly not even pastors, seven members of this church speaking out the seven sayings of Christ from the cross and leading us in worshipful meditation on Christ's last words. It's a powerful moment every year for our church. Can't recommend that you come more highly. It's going to be beautiful. Good Friday, 7 p.m. on the South Promenade Lawn, you'll see us. And then... We round the week with Easter, right back here in this building, Easter Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. So, uh, let's dive in. Palm Sunday. We open with a reading from Isaiah 56, okay, uh, which is an Old Testament prophecy about eunuchs and foreigners. How many of you are like, Palm Sunday, I really hope, man, it's, it's not Palm Sunday unless Evan gets into eunuchs. I really want to, I, I don't know, none of us, we don't think of eunuchs, and it's not much of our culture these days, um, but, but, but stick with me, over the next half hour, it'll all come together, I promise. So first, let's imagine the famous scene, and if you're new to church or Jesus, this will be helpful for you. So here's some art, we're going to just scroll through some ancient Palm Sunday art, written and inscribed by Christians throughout the centuries. And by the way, our resident artist, Joel Briggs, he's been painting back there since last fall. This is his last Sunday painting because he's finishing that piece today in the presence of the church. So it's been a beautiful uh, art piece of Thomas just dealing with being rejected and accepted, rejected by his friends and accepted by Christ all at the same time. It's an incredible meditation. Go back and check it out. Joel is putting the gold leafing on, the final touches today, so look at it in person while you still can today at some point. But this is ancient art of the same moment, a moment that really turned time on itself. So it's early Sunday morning, about a week before Jesus was crucified. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Traveling with him is, of course, his 12 disciples, but there's also a large crowd of followers from Galilee. They're going up to Jerusalem because it's Passover. But this Passover is going to be the best one ever because they all know that now is the time Jesus will become king. So it's a three or four day walk from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem and they're on the last leg of the trip. Excitement is building. They're coming up from the east from old Jericho town up the desert road of Judea and then they crest the Mount of Olives, and suddenly there's this beautiful city sprawling in front of them, Jerusalem, the city of God. An electric thrill runs through the crowd. The king is coming. He's setting up his reign. He, the king is making his approach to the throne. The prophets have told us about this for centuries. We've waited so long. Freedom. And Jesus pauses for a moment, and he says, Go into the little village over there. Find a little donkey and bring it to me because Jesus was gathering up the prophecies, specifically from Zechariah that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. 
You have that next slide. There it is. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. So they set Jesus on the donkey. And he begins the descent, that famous road, down from the top of Mount Olives toward the eastern gate of Jerusalem. How many of you have walked that road from Mount Olives to the east side of the city? Yeah. Yes. I've walked it several times. Once with my wife, who was pregnant then with our 10-year-old daughter, Harper, <laughs> and then two other times with my two oldest sons when they were old enough to take it all in. And honestly, every time I walk that road, I think about this day. You can't not think about this day. The crowd begins to erupt with joy, and they begin to shout things like, Hosanna, which in English means save us now. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David, and peace in heaven. Even heaven is involved in this moment. Glory in the highest. And then audaciously, the king of Israel. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels record this moment and these shouts. So they cut down palm branches and begin to wave them as a symbol of joy and victory. And if you'll notice as you come to communion tables today, there's palm branches all around the body of Christ today. Palm branches, a symbol of joy. And some take off their coats and throw them in front of the donkey to give Jesus a royal welcome into the city. It's like an ancient red carpet. As Jesus enters the city amidst all the hosannas and the shouts, in the way Matthew tells the story, he says there's almost a riot, like a great uproar. The whole city's like, what's going on? Who is this? Someone's being proclaimed a king coming into our city? Who could that dare be? And the Galilean crowd replied, this is Jesus. This is our guy, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Make way. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to become king in this moment. There's no question about that. Now, Jesus knows the surprising way he's going to become king through giving up his life and forgiving his enemies as they kill him. And then rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus has even told his disciples numerous times already, but they haven't quite got it. They never quite understand. But make no mistake, Jesus has come to become king, just not the way he's expected to. Park Hill Church, last week was our week of prayer and fasting as a church. We've been praying for Jesus to bring his rule and his reign in San Diego, that Jesus would come, just like Palm Sunday, Hosanna, come and save, heal diseases today, bind up broken hearts today, restore relationships. There's so much brokenness around us and inside of us. And during Lent and during this fast, we lament things like mass shootings, Come to San Diego and come to Nashville. Jesus, save now. And we lament the hostility towards targeted groups. Jesus, come save. Come bring all people in your family. This is what Lent is all about. It's God's people crying out for God's salvation and healing presence to come in our time. Which is why, you guys, we need Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into the city. We need to live into this story. He's coming into his city to prove that he's the healer we've needed all along. Palm Sunday is the first time Jesus allows himself to be publicly proclaimed as Messiah, King of the Jews, anointed, promised healer of the world. 
First time in public, he's like, thumbs up. People have been getting that revelation privately at this, before this. Up in Galilee, his intimate followers are like, aha, having these little moments of illumination. You are the Christ. You are, you are the Son of God. But up until this day, Jesus is like, shh, don't tell anyone. Not yet, not now. But on Palm Sunday, the crowd begins to chant, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like you can't stop him. It's like SDSU right now, you know? <laughs> you can't stop him from cheering. You will not be silent about this victory march. Son of David, King of Israel, and Jesus is like, go for it. In Luke's account of this moment, the Jewish teachers, the Pharisees, they tell Jesus, the Pharisees are like, hey, Jesus, shut your disciples up. You better rebuke them. Tell them to be quiet. And until this day, Jesus did. He would always tell them to be quiet, but not this day. On Palm Sunday, Jesus tells the Pharisees, oh, let me tell you, on this day, if my disciples were to be quiet, well, even the stones would have to cry out. Question, what did Jesus mean by that? Even the stones will cry out? Well, some people think, and it's popular in folk kind of Christianity, that Jesus is just making a general statement about creation. Like, hey, if you stop my people from worshiping, then even the rocks in creation will just start worshiping, which is true, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't talking about rocks in general, but the stones of the temple specifically. Jesus is doing something brilliant here. Jesus is quoting from the prophet Habakkuk, uh, which is a passage about people who build a house around injustice. Check out this prophecy Jesus is brilliantly linking in this moment. He says, woe to him. This is the original prophecy. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So when Jesus Tells the Pharisees, hey, even the stones are going to cry out. The Pharisees, they're Old Testament experts more than any living human today. And they know what, exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is calling them out for using the temple as a place to mistreat and exclude people from God's presence. How can we be sure of this, that Jesus is doing this? Well, what happens immediately after his Palm Sunday donkey ride? He rides into Jerusalem and he rides up to the temple, the hot spot of God's presence, the most beloved spot in all of Jewish thought. He rides up to the temple, and Jesus does not like what he sees. Look what happens next, Matthew's telling of the story. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. 
Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise? And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So this Palm Sunday sermon has a title, give it a title, A New Temple for Everyone. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus finally allows himself to be publicly proclaimed king and then As the king, he strides into the old temple and he doesn't like what he sees. We say he cleansed the temple, but it was more than just a cleanup thing. This was also a prophetic protest of the temple and a symbolic destruction of the temple. Jesus begins to turn over tables of the money changers who made the temple into a house of commerce. Jesus drives out the cows and the sheep, which was their money, their currency, with a whip that he braided himself. Jesus is prophetically protesting the temple and symbolically destroying the temple. And throughout his final week there in Jerusalem, Jesus, both in public and in private, he prophesies the end of the temple. He sat on the Mount of Olives, whether it was just before this event or just after, we're not sure, but he sat on the Mount of Olives and he gave his disciples signs that will mark the coming end of the temple and the end of the age. Not the end of the world, the end of the old temple age. It's ending. And not only did Jesus in his final week prophesy the end of the current temple age, but he also said some really, really provocative things like this in John's gospel account of this moment. He says, um, next slide, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. Jesus here is talking about the end of this temple that they could see, this magnificent structure, this building. It was a wonder of the world. They were standing in its shadow and he's like, these stones will cry out and not one stone will remain upon another. This thing is coming down. And his hearers destroy this temple. They're like, what does that mean? And John quickly adds the comment, he's talking about his body. But then we have to ask, what do we mean by the body of Christ? Okay, beginning with Palm Sunday, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem represents an overlapping space between an old temple doomed to destruction and a new temple that would be established in his death burial, and resurrection. One of the prophetic hints about this new temple is found right here in Matthew's text, where Matthew says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now, why is this significant? Jesus healed a lot of people. Well, this one is really significant because the blind and the lame, they were often seen begging at the margins of the temple, at the gates of the temple. But now the blind and the lame are invited into the center of the temple where Christ's presence is. And now they're leaving the temple no longer blind and no longer lame. Even children in that day, children were extremely undervalued, to say the least. Seen, not heard. But right now in the temple, in the holiest place in Israel, Jesus welcomes them and they're shouting, they're heard. Jesus, they're shouting Jesus' praises in the middle of the temple. And you know what this message is? The message is clear. This new king is building a new temple, and it's going to be a temple for everyone. 
During his prophetic protests of the temple on Palm Sunday, Jesus famously quotes this line from Isaiah the prophet. Finish the sentence, my house will be a house of prayer. And Isaiah's, Isaiah's whole line is prayer for all people. The, the verse Jesus quotes is actually my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, all nations, all families, same word. You guys, this is a big deal. Three of the four gospel accounts of Christ's life Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus quoting this line verbatim. And even John, the fourth gospel, says something very similar, like, stop turning my father's house into a market. Why? Because my house will be a house of prayer for all people. And that line comes from Isaiah 56, which is the passage Jimena read over us at the start. So that's where we are. I figured, <laughs> I figured if Jesus picked Isaiah 56 for his Palm Sunday sermon, it's good enough for Park Hill. So here we are today. Isaiah wrote this prophecy. Isaiah wrote this moment when God's people were exiles in Babylon. You guys, there was no temple, no place to visit God's presence. The Jews lost everything, worst of all, the temple. The place they could go and be with God and feel belonging as a family, it's gone. And with the temple gone, you know what that created for Isaiah? It was like a fast. With food gone, you have hunger pains leading you to God. And with the temple gone, he had loneliness and a longing for God's presence leading him to prophesy what it would be like if the temple was back. And with the power of the Spirit, Isaiah begins to dream and prophesy and write down what would it look like if God rebuilt his temple anew. And, and then we get Isaiah 56. And the, the question I want to pose right now, what are some features of the new temple Isaiah sees? Two main features. You know what they are. We read them. In the new temple God builds, there's two things that weren't there before in the old temple. Foreigners and eunuchs. Okay? So here's the leading verse. We're going somewhere, I promise. We're going somewhere with this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Not anymore, not in this temple. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. No, don't, that, you can't say that in this place anymore. That's not real anymore in this temple. So first of all, Isaiah talks about eunuchs in the new temple. Spoiler alert, guess what? In the new temple God builds, the eunuchs are thriving. They're thriving. Check it out. Look at this. Uh, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Okay, cultural translation moment, because eunuchs aren't like an American thing, really. Praise God, thankfully. So, uh, but listen, in biblical times, very normal. In fact, in like almost all ancient cultures, all Eastern cultures, eunuchs were a very common part of life, totally normal. A wealthy ruler or a king would normally have a harem of multiple wives, and he needed someone to take care of them, so it was usually a male servant, and to make sure the male servant didn't sleep with any of the property, uh, they were castrated. Very, very common practice. Horrific 
by today's standards, thanks primarily to the influence of Jesus on modern culture. But this was absolutely normal in ancient times, okay? But here's what's interesting. You ready for this? Jesus alludes to the idea of eunuchs in Matthew 19. He uses that word in his famous teaching on marriage and divorce and singleness. Very interesting. According to Tim Mackey, uh, founder of the Bible Project, Hebrew scholar, love him, he's incredible. Uh, he, he says this, Jesus uses the word eunuchs to refer to a group of people who for whatever reason meet three criteria, or one of three. They will not have sex, will not get married, will not reproduce, that's a eunuch. For whatever reason, for those three things. So if, if any of these things remotely reflect your lived experience, Jesus' teaching on the blessings toward the eunuchs in the temple of God applies to you. For whatever reason, you're part of a group of people that will not have sex, will not get married, will not reproduce, for whatever reason. For Jesus, that's what the word eunuch means. And, and, and there in Matthew 19, Jesus mentions three ways people might become eunuchs. Follow me, this is fascinating. So, so here's the verse, and this first part, should surprise no one in Jesus' culture. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by other people. That's kings making their servants eunuchs. Everyone's like, yawner, that happens all over the ancient world. What's your point, Jesus? He's like, stick with me, there's two other kinds. And he says, number two, there are eunuchs who are born that way. According to Jesus, there are people who are born in such a way that they will either not have sex, not marry, or not reproduce. And listen, Jesus doesn't speak about this as if it's negative. He just speaks about it. He just speaks about it as if we all know this and it's normalized and it's honorable. And then the third kind of eunuch he speaks of, this is the real kicker. He says, oh, this is just fascinating. He says, there are eunuchs who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And right here, Jesus is using this word of eunuch as a metaphor to describe himself. Jesus was a eunuch by his own definition number three. He says there are those who will choose a life of not having sex, not marrying, not reproducing. For what purpose? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is like, that's me. I'm a eunuch for the kingdom. That's who I am and how I live. In Jesus' day, every man who's a man was expected to marry and reproduce. And to be a man who did not marry, have sex, and reproduce was basically to be a social, sexual outcast. We could say sexual minority. But Jesus normalizes this and elevates this and dignifies this because this is precisely who Jesus chose to be. Uh, he, Jesus, our Savior, a eunuch for the kingdom. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Newsflash, I don't know if you realize this, contrary to Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code, Jesus never married. <laughs> Jesus did not marry. So why? Because contrary to American values, for Jesus, the purpose of life is not the pursuit of happiness. The purpose of life is the kingdom of God, where human beings will fulfill their true purpose when they're so made like God's own character 
that they become living, breathing images of the loving creator God, whether married or unmarried, whether having biological kids or not. In fact, historically, this is a fact, Jesus was the first religious leader in history that we know of to elevate the role of unmarried single life to be a normal, honorable, significant, meaningful way of life. Early Christianity was the first religious movement ever that elevated people not getting married as the leading exemplary lives to follow. And you guys, this is where this grates against us. In our culture today, to hear Jesus say, you don't have to have sex to live a meaningful life, well, you might as well be talking about aliens on the moon. Like that's so off the map in our culture. Why? America idolizes sex. It's, it's, the, it's the American God. Don't tell me it's not. And the American church culture has often idolized marriage and elevated it above single people. And don't get me wrong, sex and marriage are both good and beautiful gifts from God, but listen, this is the new temple God is building. You have that next slide. This is the new temple God is building. This is the new body of Christ and family of Jesus where married and unmarried people share equal value and dignity as we all live sexually faithful in the way of Jesus together as one family. And here we go. This brings us back to Palm Sunday. This is the heartbeat of Palm Sunday. This is what he does on that day. He rides into Jerusalem and stands up and shouts this verse, Isaiah 56, in the temple. And he's like, my house will be a house of prayer for all people. You know what he does in that moment? He's taking sexual outcasts and bringing them right into the center of the new temple of the living God, the body of Christ. You guys, this is really good news for faithful Jesus followers who don't fit the, quote, normal mold of husband, wife, 2.3 kids. This is really good news for women and men in the room who for whatever reason and through many tears have not been able to bear biological children. And I wanna say, if any of this remotely reflects your personal experience around sexuality or marriage or singleness or childbearing, then let Isaiah's prophecy wash over your soul right now. He says, and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. No way, not here. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. If grief and loss is part of your story, loss of a child, loss of a womb, loss of hope in romantic partnership, then listen, the new temple is specifically for you. Specifically, in the holy word, in the prophecy of Isaiah, it's for you. Which means you are completely seen here. Your cries count here. They're heard. As you continue to please God and hold fast to faith in Jesus, your labor is not in vain. God has fruitfulness 
family, value for you, healing and belonging. Not a dry tree, but a family tree for you here. And God has a name for you that's better than sons and daughters coming from you. It's something hard to imagine. Honestly, at times, because we're in the messy middle overlap, it can feel like a cruel joke. Especially when the church fails to be the church Jesus commands us to be. And for that, we can say, I'm sorry, and blessed be the name of the Lord as we repent and live together again and again. It's sometimes hard to imagine this, but one day it will be clear this new temple is for you. And the new temple is also for the foreigner. That's the other group, the foreigner. Or we could say ethnic minorities. Look at Isaiah's next words. Let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, oh, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. No, 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 no. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. You know who you are? This is who you are. I will bring you to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Yes, this is foreigners in the old temple. This is the Gentiles, the ethnic others. People with different color skin, different way of talking. Maybe they might bring a really weird dish to the temple potluck. The new temple is a place where minority cultures can br bring their full selves to the center of life and leadership. Or they're equally valued as family. They don't have to stay in their own little minority box outside the main space. In this new temple, no ethnicity has to code switch or turn off their own cultural identity in order to fit the dominant way of doing things. Isaiah says, in this new temple, they, who you think are the they, they're mine actually, and they, bring, they get to bring their burnt offerings. They don't have to buy yours. They bring their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. That means their styles of worship, their kind of hospitality, their home-cooked meals that taste different than your normal way of doing things because my house will be a house of prayer for all people, all nations. This new temple of Jesus is just as much for the minority culture as it is for the majority culture. Of course, we have to name the messy reality we're in. As local churches, we're not fully there yet. Show me one that is, and I want to learn. I want to name this at Park Hill Church. It doesn't always feel like the church family is a place for all ethnicities. But at the same time, I can confess with 100% integrity and joy that we are working toward that as a church, actively, intentionally, not just conversations, but actions that amount to tangible expressions of ethnic unity. And um, I could talk about that. We've talked about it a lot in February. We could talk, we're going to keep talking about it all year long. I see you, brothers and sisters of color. Our church wants to keep growing in racial justice and unity and awareness and celebration of the diverse experiences that exist in our midst. We want our church to become the true multi-ethnic family, the New Testament calls us to become, where there's like actual freedom in the room for brothers and sisters of color to say when they feel invisible, 
Like we expect, like we being dominant culture, me as a white male representing dominant culture leadership, I expect to hear from minority experiences and they're like, hey, I feel very unseen. And, and, and the goal is for minority folks to speak into decisions and partner in leading this family into the future God has for us. You guys, we want this. Why? Not because of some secular ideology around social justice that's not rooted in the gospel, but because on Palm Sunday, Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, all people. I just, I, I, I want to say there are plenty of ways of doing social justice that are not biblical, but biblical justice, when it's lived out in the community of the Spirit, will always be social. Understand that. There are, there are versions of social justice that are not gospel, but all biblical justice will have social impact. It just will. And we, we have to own that. We have to work toward it. We can't just let go and let God on that, you know? So... Because we don't want the old temple way. We don't want the old temple way of gathering and worshiping and organizing ourselves. Which is why Jesus says in John's gospel, destroy this temple and three days I'll raise it up. And John adds the note, when he says temple, he's talking about his body. But then we have to ask, what do we mean by the body of Christ? Well, there's the physical body of Jesus crucified and risen, his flesh. That's the body of Christ. But then there's also the body of Christ that is the church. That's the body of Christ. But that's held together in mystical union by the body of Christ that is the Eucharist, the bread and cup. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking about a new kind of temple, a new kind of temple where in Christ, God has given us a new covenant. A new, we are a new Israel, a new humanity. We are a new temple. And you guys, these become major themes in the, you guessed it, New Testament. Paul, Paul, he says this in his letter to Corinth. He tells the diverse Corinthian church, you are God's temple. Who'd he say that to? A bunch of Gentiles. They're now God's temple. Imagine that. And Paul tells the Ephesian church, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of a holy temple for the Lord. And Peter, he writes a letter to new Christians who are scattered all across the Roman Empire. How are we even impacting each other's lives? Like, oh, you have no idea. You're living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple that he lives in even as you're scattered. You know what this means? In other words, the old temple of limestone is gone. The new temple of living stones has come. By the way, I know there are good and godly people that disagree with this, but I do believe that this is why any kind of end times view that puts hope in some kind of future temple building in Jerusalem, I think that really misses a major point of the entire New Testament. Why? Because the purposes of God no longer focus on a specific geographical space in a man-made temple made of limestone. Now, the purposes of God are focused on a worldwide temple made of living stones, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And this new temple made of living stones, with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, it's to be a temple for all people. All are invited to join the body of Christ. The new temple and family of Jesus, that's who we are. There's just one requirement for entry. All people, 
That's who this temple is for, and that's who this temple will be, with one requirement for entry. In Isaiah's words, which we read multiple times, it's to bind yourself to the Lord. Or in Paul's words, it's to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the authority of the world and of your whole life, and to trust that God raised Jesus from the dead. Or how we often say it around Park Hill, you admit you need God's forgiveness and healing, and then commit to his family to live out that admission. It's really the one entry requirement for the temple that lasts forever. You admit, and you do it through baptism, you enter the community, the temple, you become a stone in the wall through the water. If you have never entered the water of baptism to become a living stone in the new temple God is building, listen, do not let today pass you by. You are invited to join the temple, to become part of God's house. Don't you want the statement, you are God's temple, to be true about you? where his presence is available to you and you are present to him and he lives in you and as you gather in your community, he's among you. That's only true about the confessed, the confessing, believing, baptized body of Christ. So confess, believe, and be baptized. This is the Palm Sunday call. If you've never been baptized, that's a live issue. If you're like a Jesus follower, but baptism, I don't really know. Or if you have any question about where you sit with God, let's resolve that question today. We invite you, leadership, the whole church invites you to join this family by your own free choice to become part of the building that God has been constructing ever since Jesus Christ breathed his spirit on his disciples and said, go and make more disciples. So what is required? Admit. Yes, I've sinned against God, absolutely. I've sinned against others. I've even sinned against my own body. That's what Paul calls sexual morality, like living sexually in a way against the way of Jesus. He said that's the one thing that's actually unique. It's not worse than other sins. It's just kind of unique in that it's a sin against yourself. And with my words, I've sinned against others and my actions. And, and you need to admit then, I need God's forgiveness. And Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He died for that forgiveness to be available to me and rose from the dead and he reigns over the universe at the right hand of the Father. And one day Jesus will come back in perfect judgment. So I submit my body and my mind and my whole life to the authority and goodness of Jesus. In other words, bind yourself to the Lord and bind yourself to his family, the temple of Jesus. And so that's the call to everyone personally. Accept the authority and goodness of Jesus over your life. How? Through baptism. And if you're already baptized, you're a Jesus follower, baptized believer, that whole thing, then listen, here's, a, here's, here's what this sermon means for all of us. If Jesus is building this kind of house, with all these kinds of people? And our houses then are to reflect his house? Who's missing from your table? Think of the blind and lame. How long did it take the blind and lame to rush, quote unquote, rush that temple mount to be healed? 
took a long time. Jesus was patient and he waited for them. He created space for people with disabilities. Are we creating space for people with disabilities in our lives? This is an active conversation in our leadership. We would love for Park Hill Church to continue to grow as a, as a space that doesn't just cater to people with disabilities or, or put, put them in a nice area or something, but actually collaborates in ministry with people with disabilities in various ways. And we're dreaming, what does that look like? Five years, six years into our church, we're in our sixth year, what would that look like? That's, they're the greatest minority of all, one out of five. What, 20% of this room, people with disabilities, most you can't even see. And Jesus waits for them, and they rush to him, and they receive healing from him. And we often think of physical healing for people with disabilities, but what if the greatest kind of healing for people with disabilities is social healing? They're actually dignified. It's like, oh, the first thing I see about you is not necessarily a problem. But you belong, and I, we all have our own quirks, and we all bring it to the table of Jesus. Are, are persons with disabilities missing from your life and your, or maybe you don't know if they even are or the children <laughs> there's children rushing Jesus my goodness orphan care we want to rally around royal family kids we want our community groups right now our community groups are being invited to create respite care for foster families in San Diego all of our leaders are currently thinking about what it would look like for their community groups to rally around families who are hosting, uh, who are fostering children in San Diego. Or maybe your home is to become a foster home. Maybe you're finally, you've been on the line, am I supposed to adopt, am I supposed to foster, and it's time to take that more seriously, one notch. What would, what would, what would it look like to actually step forward rather than just dream? And of course, the eunuchs, people with a different experience around sexuality than the majority. But we all are chasing after the faithfulness of Jesus together, but man, who's missing from your table that experiences their sexuality different than most of us as we all pursue Jesus together? And then the foreigner, of course. How is the New Testament's clear call for ethnic unity being realized in your home? And remember, all of these people groups I'm mentioning, I'm, I'm putting out a call to the church, to become the church. To church, if you're already the church, live, the, live as the church. <laughs> if this is the new temple God is building, what would it take to move your home or your way of life more toward that temple kind of life? Who's missing from your table? And of course, back to the personal call. First things first, if you've never been baptized, now is the time. At the 8 a.m. gathering, we had two people spontaneously be baptized, Josh and Liz. Pray for Josh and Liz today. All week long, Holy Week, all the way to Easter, pray that God strengthens them in this first week of public faith. Will this be your first week of public faith? You're invited. I'm gonna walk over to the table, uh, the tank, the baptistry, I'm gonna walk over the water right now and just wait for you. And Drew's gonna come up and sing. And as he does, come. 
Let us cheer you into the family. Admit you're in need of God's forgiveness and commit to his temple, to his family he's building. That's the call. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now? Bring daughters and sons into your family to build our lives together on the cornerstone who is Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the rock that will never fail, as we're gonna sing today. Christ, our firm foundation, you will never, ever fail us. Even though we'll fail, we're built on the cornerstone. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd, I'd love to invite you all. Yeah, amen.